At the very heart of the sharing economy is this idea that we all have a bunch of stuff just sitting in our homes, unused most of the time. If we could somehow share these idling resources with others, maybe they wouldn't have to purchase the same resources for their own use. Instead of purchasing a new car or a new drill, maybe we could share access to these idling resources with another person. And with the help of technology, maybe we could share with dozens more. Such a scheme would reduce production and increase the material efficiency of our economies. In other words, products and their component parts would be used until they no longer function, instead of just being discarded much earlier than their end of life. At least that's the idea behind the sharing economy. But the concept has been co-opted and manipulated into something far from sustainability. In today's episode, we take a critical perspective on the sharing economy and offer tangible solutions for businesses and consumers to reclaim the sharing economy for sustainability. You are listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, broadcasting from the International Institute for Industrial and Environmental Economics at Lund University. This episode will be hosted by Catherine Shebb and Stephen Curtis. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions. My name is Stephen Curtis. And I'm Catherine Shebb. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about the sharing economy. Now, I know you may or may not have heard of this concept before, but cities and startups around the world are seeking to take advantage of idling resources that we have at home. Those goods that sit unused most of the time in the closet or in our driveways. Think of companies like Airbnb and Uber or business models like car sharing and bike sharing. Although, we'll take a critical perspective on these business models within the sharing economy and suggest when they may or may not contribute to sustainability. And with this episode, we spotlight our last PhD researcher at the IIIEE who will be defending their thesis this spring. And of course, I'm talking about our very own podcast founder and co-host, Stephen Curtis. That's you. What do you have for us in this episode? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. No, I'm super excited to defend my PhD thesis. And, uh, you know, it's fun to be on this side of things. You know, usually we're collaborating with colleagues to produce an episode. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited to share what I've been working on now for, for nearly five years. And, and my research is quite normative in, in suggesting how sharing economy business models should be designed in order to actually realize their sustainability potential. Now, the sharing economy is widely seen as providing access over ownership. This notion of access will be important throughout the episode. But what I've found in my research and what I wish listeners to take away is that the sharing economy is not sustainable by default, despite what companies and governments and academia and the media say about the sharing economy is not always more sustainable, and we must be strategic and deliberate in how we design business models within the sharing economy. Absolutely, Stephen. I think that's the biggest misconception that we always assume that sharing economy is associated with something positive and sustainable. So really excited to unpack that, that misconception with you today. But just before we do that, when you say business model, what do you mean? 
Yeah, so so a business model quite simply is a representation of the activities and functions of a business. In research, we often discuss the business model and how the business creates, delivers, and captures value. And of course, value here is interpreted quite broadly. I mean, traditionally, value is seen as economic or shareholder value. So think profits or dividends. But this interpretation is slowly changing and expanding to consider other types of value too. Um, for example, environmental value, social value, public value, or shared value. Uh, for me, it helps to see the business model answering the questions, how, what, and who. How does the business model function? In what way does it achieve its goals? And who has the responsibility to carry that out? So that's how I think about business models. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. But do you have maybe a tangible example for listeners to already start thinking about business models and maybe even their sustainability implications? Yeah, so I think a really good example here is actually bike sharing. I mean, who can hate on bike sharing, right? Uh, I certainly love riding a bike. And I know that more and more people are seeing biking as a sustainable means of transportation compared to driving a car. It's seen a resurgence during the pandemic with users transitioning from public transportation where they may be exposed to more people um, to bikes where people are more willing to commute in their cities uh, using bike sharing. I think most people would welcome bike sharing initiatives popping up in their cities. So what's the problem? I've, if you could elaborate here, because definitely I'm somebody who's always been very supportive of bike sharing. So please don't tell me there's a dark side. Yeah, uh, you know, I think this is why we have to consider the business model underlying these bike sharing services. And, and I think that's the focus then of today's episode. I mean, bike sharing is simply just a form of short term rental. And uh, I think about two business models that dominate the bike sharing service landscape, uh, those what I call business to consumer models and peer to peer models. And we see that the majority of bike sharing services are business to consumer companies where the company provides access to bikes in which they own. And unfortunately, in our hyper-capitalistic society, these business-to-consumer models, they compete on access, which means that these companies are incentivized to flood the market with so many bikes that one company becomes more convenient than another option and until only one company dominates in a, in a particular market. But what we see happening is that these bike sharing companies then go out of business and we have to ask what happens to these bikes when they do or, or when a bike sharing service uh, exit a market. This boom and bust sees probably millions of bikes that are just discarded, thrown away, trashed, becoming scrap metal, sitting in huge piles. If you haven't already seen these pictures, it's quite visceral. I, I suggest Googling bike graveyards and you really begin to see the enormity of the problem. And this is to say nothing about rebound effects. So these business-to-consumer models, they can induce unnecessary production and use, which is not sustainable. For example, because bike sharing is now available, maybe someone will ride a bike that otherwise would have not. Also, we have to consider what mobility practices are riders replacing. Are they replacing private car ownership or public transportation? I mean, obviously, public transportation is, is still a more sustainable option, so, so it becomes very complex, and, and that's why I've dedicated my research to providing more support for entrepreneurs and managers and policymakers and, and consumers like you and I to design and think more sustainably about the sharing economy. That sounds really dismal, Stephen. I actually took the opportunity to Google bike graveyards, 
as as you were speaking and unfortunately those those images are horrendous as you say and, and it seems like at least from google like the biggest pictures that come up are all in china do you know if that's a global problem or that's really mostly happening in china it is a global problem i've seen stories out of the us as well with uh, uber uh, they had a bike sharing platform called jump that went under and had some some changes in management but interestingly enough i think that 95% of all the bikes associated with bike sharing actually are within china and and china has been unique in experiencing this huge boom in bike sharing but then of course the the, the bust that then has uh, followed Okay, thank you for that enlightenment, Stephen. And just a quick question. So there's various components of the of the sharing economy. Um, why specifically do you focus on business models? Uh, yeah, I mean, simply, I think that that's where the most impact can be made uh, for for several reasons. I think more and more people are wanting to make sustainable decisions, but uh, we often lack the knowledge or support or, or guidance to do so. And I know as a sustainability researcher, I feel that I have some sort of moral responsibility then to support societal actors like businesses, whether providing knowledge or collaborating with them to improve their business offering, maybe working together to assess their sustainability claims, uh, or simply, my favorite part is just being critical of their actions and, and decisions and, and being a, a devil's advocate in society. I also see a weakening of the state at a national and local level, which I do think spells problems for the ability to implement policies needed to tackle some of our biggest challenges like climate change. And, and of course, we are seeing forces that seek to delegitimize the media and the academy. And as such, I think that it's important to speak out to try and reverse these trends. And I believe that business will play a deciding role in our ability to transition towards that sustainable future. It sounds, Stephen, like your research is a bit like action-oriented research. Is that right? Yeah, it's definitely applied research and, and normative in the sense that I'm seeking to offer uh, tangible solutions in a way that businesses can reflect on and improve their business offering for sustainability. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great example of how academia actually can be used in the real world instead of being left in this ivory tower. So that's it's very inspiring to see that kind of practical applied research. And so to help tell the story of the sharing economy and business models, we have arranged two guests joining us on this episode as well. So first, we will hear from Oksana Mont, Professor of Sustainable Consumption Governance at the Institute, and also Stephen, your supervisor. Um, then we will hear from Anthony Upward, a sustainability business architect and the self-proclaimed pracademic, somebody who is both a practitioner and an academic. We are joined by Oksana Mont, Professor of Sustainable Consumption Governance here at the Institute and Principal Investigator of the Urban Sharing Research Program funded by the European Research Council. She's also my PhD supervisor, so I'm really excited to get her here on the podcast. Welcome, Oksana. Thank you. Cool to be part of this podcast. So let's start big picture, right? What is sustainable consumption and production and, and why do you see it as important? It is uh, slightly narrower than sustainable development, which is really embracing everything, uh, including ecosystem services and planetary boundaries and everything. 
but sustainable consumption and production is about the society, the how we produce and consume goods. It's about material resource flows and the economic part of it. And, and why is that important for us to, to study and research and, and implement in practice? I think it's important to study sustainable consumption and production because we do need to reach the sustainable development goals. And one way to do it is to look at how we produce and use uh, natural resources, how we consume them, how we emit, pollute, and hopefully how we may do it in a much more sustainable, less polluting way. And since we're talking in this episode two about the sharing economy, how do you see the sharing economy contributing to the sustainable consumption and production? So sharing economy is basically an emerging phenomenon, which is happening regardless of researchers' discussions of sustainability. And it's about how we can gain access to stuff that we already produced and have in our society, and how can we provide access to these physical goods or, or other skills or time so that many more people can draw benefits. And so sharing economy, I see, is one leg on which sustainable production and consumption is standing. It focuses on optimizing the resource use of the consumption phase, while the sustainable production and with its other leg, circular economy, is more about how we can improve resource efficiency of our production processes and products, while sharing economy is how can we optimize the use of it. Okay, thank you for that really clear distinction, Oksana. And, um, you know, Stephen, you had mentioned that Oksana is your supervisor, and it would be great to hear, you know, if you could tell us more about this urban sharing project that you've been working together on. So um, it's a five-year research project called Urban Sharing, where we study the sharing economy in city settings. And as Stephen mentioned before, it is funded by European Research Council, which is like the top-notch uh, research funding institution in Europe. So we were very happy to receive this funding. And the project looks at three dimensions of the sharing economy. One is uh, how the sharing platforms or sharing economy organizations are designed. How do they operate? Then the second one is what is their sustainability profile? Are they economically feasible? Are they socially just? Are they environmentally beneficial compared to the traditional business models? And the third dimension is what we call institutionalization. Basically, we would like to see how this phenomenon of sharing economy gets normalized, becomes a normal part of everyday life in, in our lives of all people. And uh, it's an exciting project because we look at three sectors, uh, mobility sharing, for example, car and bike sharing. It's uh, a space sharing where we include accommodation sharing, but also sharing on workspaces and even parking spaces. And uh, the third sector is, um, or what we call sharing practices, is uh, sharing of physical goods, including clothes, do-it-yourself tools, and everything else. And we look at uh, from five cities. Uh, we investigate sharing economy in Amsterdam, Toronto, Shanghai, Melbourne, and Seoul. So we have a global perspective on the topic. Yeah, I mean, you get the idea that this is a massive undertaking, <laughs> a really cool project. And Oksana, we're only, what, two and a half years or so we're through the project? Term, yes. Yeah, and already and accomplished so much. Exactly, and learned yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's immersive. I mean, when yeah. we go to these cities, you really just 
yeah, you absorb and immerse yourself in the context. It's really cool. I, I'm wondering if there are any examples of sharing economy business models that stand out to you from our investigation of these cities. They are very diverse, but I think it's good to, to know two things. One is that originally sharing economy, and that's why we call them sharing platforms, is that there is a a platform which is a mediator. There is a resource owner, somebody who owns an asset. I have a home. Then there is a platform. I offer my home on this platform. And then there is a resource user, someone who gets access or would like to get access to my home. So it's a triadic business model or what we call peer-to-peer. -peer. It's the peers who own resources and use resources and platform is just a matchmaker. So this is one, this is kind of the traditional way of seeing it. And then, of course, when we look at different um, geographical understandings of the sharing economy in China, for example, uh, they include also business to consumer, a typical traditional business model where a company offers access to assets. So there is a dyadic business model. There are only two actors um, but they also go, it's not that the company sells the product, but they rent or lease the product. So this is one thing. Another thing one can, uh, I can mention that they also differ in terms of some of them are for profit. And then they are very capitalistic or neoliberal capitalism in their nature. They want to grow, they want to expand, they want to conquer the market. While others are non-profit, they can be very local, run by um, local entrepreneurs or volunteers in a cooperative way. And their point is of existence is not to expand, but to really nurture the community that, uh, of, of their users and their participants. So these are two very different uh, types of sharing platforms. I think an interesting business model that I observed in Amsterdam, right, was the boat sharing. And of mm. course, this is where context comes into play in um, the types of business models mm. that we see. Another one that I thought was interesting was uh, when we were studying Shanghai and the, the mobile phone charging stations, right. uh, mobile phone banks. Uh, and that also felt somewhat very um, context specific where, yeah, the mobile phone is, is so ubiquitous and so important in a mm. lot of these large Chinese cities. Yeah, so charging is important when you come to a restaurant, then there is the service coming to you and possibility to charge your, your phone. Um, and also now, come to think of it, during Corona, we saw a lot of uh, innovations and, and companies really changing their business models to offer more online services, to engage people who are sitting in quarantine or to hook up with, for example, Uber drivers. They are now less uh, serving the private individuals, but they're working more, for example, with food delivery or medicine delivery. So in a way, it's the same business model, but the service range is, is being extended. Yeah, so listening to you guys, it seems like there are you know many, many examples and some of them context specific, some not, but obviously many actors involved, from peers to consumers. And this might be a bit of a difficult question, Oksana, because of the diversity of actors and context-specific. But in general, would you have any advice for policymakers, managers, or even maybe consumers to ensure the sustainability of this uh, sharing economy? I think some themes are definitely emerging in terms of advice for policymakers and managers, consumers, but maybe primarily to cities and municipalities. 
because we see a really critical role they have to play in shaping the sustainability profile of their cities, but also the role that sharing organizations can play in that. And this is to recognize and support the diversity of the sharing platforms. We see in many cities, uh, more support is given and recognition given to for-profit organizations. Um, also, of course, many of them come and kind of conquer the city and then city municipalities are responsive. So in that way, they can be more strategic and see sharing economy as something that is happening and unfolding, so they need to be prepared. But they also can see this, as we saw in some cities, that they see it as a part of their sustainability agenda, the way to address the sustainability challenges that the cities are facing. So I think first support the diversity and then, of course, recognize that sharing platforms are not sustainable per se as such. So we need, first of all, more tools in order to help municipalities measure and see which one is more sustainable than another one and under what conditions and what is the role of municipality in nurturing this sustainability dimensions of sharing platforms. There's certainly a role here for the urban sharing project as well, I guess, to provide knowledge, tools, and leadership in this regard. I'm wondering if people wanted to learn more about the project and your work, how would they find more about you? Well, we have a website, urbansharing.org, where we try to not only provide information about the project, but where we are. We have a blog there. We put also news. And then our colleague, Yulia Vetenko-Paldan, she's done six short videos about talking about the different roles municipalities play in shaping sharing platforms in different cities. Well, Oksana, I want to thank you so much for being here. A great interview and uh, look forward to continuing to follow your work. Next, we welcome Anthony Upward to the podcast. Anthony is a sustainability business architect and a self-proclaimed pracademic in the area of sustainable business models. Now, pracademic is someone who is an academic and a practitioner. As such, he advises business leaders on the strategic need for and practical implementation of sustainability strategies. He also engages in teaching and research. He oversees the Strongly Sustainable Business Model Group on LinkedIn and a flourishing enterprise design consultancy called Edward James Consulting. Welcome, Anthony, and thank you for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thank you very much. So, Anthony, why don't we start off a bit with you trying to explain to us what are sustainable business models? So a business model is the definition of uh, how an organization defines and achieves success. And so a sustainable business model is one which includes in that definition of success something to do with sustainability. Uh, and that is in the eye of the beholder. So however you want to define sustainability is the, uh, is, the, is the way to do it. So you put sustainable with business models and it's something to do with sustainability and a successful business. Okay. And then what would you say is the business case for sustainable business models? I mean, why would you encourage managers or even entrepreneurs to implement some sustainable business models? So it hinges on this question of what is a successful business. 
that what is a successful sustainable business that's almost redundant you don't really need to include the word sustainable in there because a successful business by its definition has to be sustainable what's interesting is in the world today the definition of what is a viable business what is a successful business is changing and it's changing due to a lot of factors there's all the normal factors of course that change viability which is you know market preference law regulation etc but there's a whole bunch of new factors that we've not that business hasn't had to deal with historically that are also changing the definition of what makes a viable what makes it a possibly successful business and those are factors that are coming from the feedback loops that are going on in the environment created largely by our own actions and all the feedback loops created by changes in our values what we want in the world and therefore what we want of our businesses to do for us so when you recognize that the definition of viability itself is changing then that means the definition of success is changing the business case becomes do you want to stay viable or not if you want the chance to be viable if you want the chance to be successful then you need to include all of these factors that are relevant to you that are material to you in the definition of your business model so in a sense this is not a argument that i'm making that requires you to suddenly become an environmentalist or suddenly become a social justice warrior what i'm arguing is that if you want to be financially viable you need to pay attention to this stuff yeah do you think that uh, standard or traditional businesses today are sufficiently integrating these other factors in order to remain viable in the future absolutely not um and um the factors are growing in strength all the time we know that climate change is getting worse we know income inequality is getting worse so th these are factors that most businesses are not incorporating today there's some signs that they are starting to uh, the un global compact and all the work it's been doing with the sdgs is a good example of where there's attempts being made but in terms of is it enough given where the definition of viability actually is today no no it's uh, no it's not if we're talking about, you know, definitions of success, what would you look for when assessing whether businesses are successfully integrating sustainability into their business models? So one of the key tests for me is whether or not they're serious about a long term future vision for themselves. So we know that if you were to try and become a completely sustainable business based on what the science says we have to do, if you were to try and become future fit today, if you were trying to become strongly sustainable, flourishing today, you'd go out of business because the market conditions, law regulation hasn't yet got all of the things in it that you need in order to be future fit today. So the reason why the future vision matters so much is that we need businesses to start imagining how are they going to be fully sustainable in a world which enables them to be fully sustainable. So what that then means is when they come back to the present and they're looking at what their next business model is going to be, they're doing it within this long term context. And so the idea is that in the short term, you can then take steps to ensure you remain viable today, that you are working towards your long term vision, which may, for example, include influencing law and regulation or market conditions or your supply chain design or whatever it happens to be. And because in the, the future fit state, you'll be doing no harm and hopefully doing some good. You're also concerned about the journey that you're on is doing as little harm as possible in order to get you to that future vision. So that's what I would be looking for. I'd be looking for a long term future vision and then evidence that they're serious about moving towards that in their next business model, in their next strategy. The question that rises to my head in, in discussing this uh, is why are businesses not doing this today? 
And I just wanted to reflect briefly on, on a sharing economy business model that I think is something that uh, really kind of contextualizes the complexity with sustainable business models that is like bike sharing. We see the, these bike sharing platforms pop up in China, there's hyper competition, they flood the market, and then these companies go bankrupt and suddenly you have you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of bikes just in a bike graveyard, you know, rusting. But yet on the surface, like a lot of people are really positive about bike sharing as a sustainable business model. Why, why are more businesses not actually thinking systemically about the challenges that they face today and, and into the future? I think uh, a a large part of it is just it isn't normal yet. And I'll I'll deep dive in that in one specific area. There are very, very few MBA programs on the planet which appropriately surface and prioritize these historic factors that have not been involved in short-term profitability, but are now becoming vital for short-term profitability. And so, again, I'm not making the environmental or the social argument. I'm just making the, the business viability argument. And unfortunately... The faculty in business schools just aren't paying attention to this. To give them a bit of an out, of course, most sociologists aren't paying attention to this either. And if you like, uh, business schools are micro-sociology. And, um, you know, even most economists aren't paying attention to it. So there's only the very small group of ecological systems thinking economists. So there's this cascading set of problems that uh, we have in education where these topics are just not being brought up based on what the science says we should be concerned about. Yeah. If we take this concept of sustainable business models and apply it to some of these uh, buzzwords like the sharing economy, do you see any possible strengths or weaknesses of their of these existing business models? So I think a lot of these buzzwords, you know, circular economy, sharing economy, are somewhat useful in that they highlight an area which is either ripe for improvement uh, in the case of the sharing economy because of technology or ripe for improvement because we know that we need to recycle, reuse, repurpose, remanufacture all of our technical nutrients and we need to let all of our biological nutrients go back through the, the ecosystem in a, in a way that doesn't that actually enhances the ecosystem service outputs from the ecosphere. But they are just that, they're just buzzwords. And those buzzwords only discuss parts of business models. So when you use a tool like the Flourishing Business Canvas that includes all of the necessary and sufficient aspects to describe any business model, irrespective of its definition of success from profit first to flourishing strong sustainability. What you discover is when you map, for example, circular economy onto that, it only deals with two boxes. There's another 14 boxes that circular economy doesn't touch in, in, in its buzzword definition. Uh, similarly, sharing economy, you could say that touches the same two boxes because it's all about the resources and, and where those resources come from. You know, the bike graveyard, is a very large biophysical stock that's been created by these businesses that's now sitting in the environment. And if our listeners were interested in learning more about your work, especially the Flourishing Business Canvas, how would you recommend them finding you? Uh, So there's two uh, links that I would give. The first of all is our YouTube channel, which is tv.flourishingbusiness.org. And the second is our website, which is www.flourishingbusiness.org. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to have you on the podcast.
We've just heard from Oksana Mont and Anthony Upward discussing the sharing economy and sustainable business models. Now, with Stephen's support, let's merge all of these ideas together to discuss sharing economy business models for sustainability. And to do so, we must understand the status quo and how sharing economy business models work, which may actually be reducing environmental or social sustainability. Stephen, what do you have for us today? We hear concepts like greenwashing, where companies will present their uh, business activities as contributing to sustainability. And there are similar concepts in the sharing economy as well. It's called sharewashing, where businesses present their sharing economy activities as contributing to this like warm glow of people coming together and sharing idling assets. Uh, but that isn't always the case. And so I think it's important for us as consumers to think critically about the businesses that we use and the impacts that these business models have on the environment and the lives of others and, and our lives. We've already highlighted these business to consumer bike sharing companies, which are creating an artificial idling capacity of underutilized assets, leading to an uncountable number of bikes that are just being discarded. But I want to talk about three other practices that are also said to belong to the sharing economy, which may not contribute to more sustainable consumption. And of course, this depends on how their business models are designed. So this is why it's super important to then talk about the, these business models. So these practices are accommodation sharing, ride hailing, and e-scooters. Great, Stephen. So then let's talk about each one of those individually then. You know, and interesting, we've talked about how they may not contribute to sustainable consumption. And if we start with accommodation sharing, I mean, at least Airbnb has been in the news for being quite controversial, at least from a social perspective. So yeah, why don't you talk us through accommodation sharing? Yeah, so if we consider companies like Airbnb and VRBO uh, associated with accommodation sharing, we're seeing a growing number of what are called professionalized hosts offering accommodation on these platforms. Now, professionalized hosts typically manage multiple properties instead of just being neighbors uh, you know, that are simply sharing access to a spare room. Uh, and I know as a tourist, this seems like an attractive option, right? To have an entire space to yourself, you know, to have the privacy and the comfort of living at home and maybe even being immersed more centrally in, in the local life living in the city center. But as a result, entire neighborhoods are changing because of this professionalization of accommodation sharing. And, and as apartments and homes are being bought up by these professionalized hosts, local residents are complaining of noise, of a lessened sense of community and, and the gentrification of their neighborhoods. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, ride hailing also doesn't have such a great reputation. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that there is a place for ride hailing as part of our urban mobility mix. Um, I see it as an updated form of the taxi service for the 21st century, right? Utilizing technology to make it uh, easier to access a taxi service. But I think we also must point out then the exploitative nature of these business models underpinning these ride hailing services. So these drivers aren't seen as employees, they're independent contractors. And these drivers, these independent contractors, are without the same benefits then associated with typical employment, and, and they don't have the ability to collectively bargain for better wages or better uh, working conditions. And while these companies and proponents of ride hailing claim that it is a more sustainable mobility offer, empirical evidence suggests that that's just not the case. We see increased congestion and increased greenhouse gas emissions as drivers are, are just driving through cities or, or sitting idly waiting for their next fare. 
And, you know, just to showcase the absurdity of it all, I, I've even heard anecdotes of drivers that are stashing phones and trees around the city just so these ride-hailing algorithms will provide them with the fare, even if they're not in the vicinity. So then they have to quickly drive to the, to the next fare, even if they're not anywhere nearby. Um, and, and finally, I think it should be said that these companies regularly fail to turn a profit. So to me, it really begs the question, where does all the money go and what are they doing with our user data and, and what really justifies their existence? And at least right now, I'm not sure that the business case is there. Yeah, I mean, at least also going back to your like the social problem of Uber as an example. I mean, when I lived in the UK, interestingly, Uber drivers took Uber to court in trying to bring all of these issues to light. So it's not only like potentially environmentally harmful, but also socially and financially not viable. Is there anything a bit more positive for e-scooters or is it as bleak on that side of the story? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to present this as some bleak picture, but I think what I want to convey is that we really have to think about our consumption behavior when using these sharing economy business models. Uh, so e-scooters have a similar problem as, as bike sharing if, if they operate as, as business to consumer platforms. I want to give you some hard data. I'm from the US, just a, a stone's throw away of Chicago. And in 2020, the city of Chicago commissioned a pilot program to study the introduction of e-scooters throughout their city. Their report was just released, and I think that there was some interesting and, and quite shocking statistics, really, that call into question the long-term viability of the e-scooter business model as well. So uh, just to give you some numbers here, the city allowed for a maximum of 10,000 scooters across the city. And on average, each scooter was used 0.59 times per day, so less than once per day. Nearly 40% of users said that the e-scooter replaced walking, and 11.5% of users said the e-scooter replaced public transportation. And uh, I just don't think that's very good if more than 50% of riders replaced more sustainable mobility practices. The average ride lasted approximately 18.5 minutes and cost about $8, which is significantly more than what a bus fare or taking public transit would be. And riders were dominated by well-educated white males between the ages of 25 and 34, even though there was efforts to place the scooters in areas that maybe aren't represented in the same way. So I definitely think that there is some progress that is needed to be made in order for these practices to be sustainable. And big shout out to uh, David Zipper on Twitter for highlighting these statistics. There's definitely a vibrant discussion on social media about whether these business models do indeed contribute to urban mobility and sustainability. Yeah, I mean, and these statistics also highlight other things that maybe I personally wouldn't have thought of. So for example, just listening to you say that nearly 40% of users said that e-scooters replaced walking. I mean, not only are you shifting to a less sustainable mode of transportation, but you're also choosing a less healthy option. You know, if you have the choice of walking and now you're riding, then also that is, you know, that's impacting your health over time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this just underscores how complex sustainability is, especially when we're talking about sustainable consumption. So we have to take in to account the broader context, the business actions, and the consumption practices in order for us to say that our behavior is contributing to improve sustainability. And I think it's important, of course, then to talk about how this can be done in practice.
The sharing economy discourse is dominated by companies like Airbnb, Uber, and Car2Go. But if the sharing economy provides access over ownership, what is the difference between these business models compared to that of a hotel, taxi, or car rental service, all of which also provide access? An early challenge that I had in my research was defining the sharing economy as the term is used widely, but with no definition that's really agreed upon. Then how did you define the sharing economy in the context of your research? Yeah, well, of course, I sought to develop a, a definition that at least had the potential to deliver on sustainability claims made by so many. In contrast to simply sharing, I suggest that the sharing economy is different in that it uses technology to mediate exchanges between people, between strangers often. So two key characteristics here, right? The first is the use of technology to make it easier to share among strangers by you know, increasing access to information, by facilitating communication, by making it easier to pay, all done so within an app or on a website. So I suggest that technology helps to reduce the transaction costs associated with sharing, transaction costs being the effort needed to take part in the exchange. And obviously, the easier it is to share, the more likely people are willing and able to participate in the sharing economy, and therefore, the more efficient and greater intensity of use is possible with our resources. And uh, you mentioned a second characteristic that sharing takes place between people. What do you mean? Yeah, well, I suggest that the sharing economy sees someone who has a resource that is willing to share that resource and someone else who is willing to access that same resource. We'd call this a two-sided market, right? There's a supply side and a demand side. And in the middle of that is the sharing platform or the, the, the company. I think if we think of the sharing economy this way, then I would exclude business to consumer companies from the sharing economy. In most instances, the, the business model behind the business to consumer company, they buy a new stock of goods and they compete again, based on this convenience, which creates an artificial idling capacity of underutilized assets. All right. So seeing the sharing economy as a two-sided market ensures that sharing takes place between people, not just renting resources from a company. And so how does this definition respond to some of the criticisms of the sharing economy? Yeah, so I think it responds in three ways to ensure that sharing economy business models are designed sustainably. So first, I suggest that sharing economy business models must take advantage of the idling capacity of an existing stock of goods. So in other words, what I mean here is that we share access to goods that are already produced in our society, things that we have sitting around at home. And I think there's a huge environmental and economic potential here as well. You know, just take your car, for example. I mean, it, it's said to be sitting in your driveway idling, you know, upwards of 95% of the time. A power drill is also another common example that's used. A power drill during its lifetime will only be used a handful of minutes. So if we can provide access to these already produced goods and increase their intensity of use and the material efficiency, suddenly we, there's, there's huge environmental potential here. Second, I, I suggest that the business model should ensure that sharing is not motivated only by making money. And here, I don't mean to say that money is a bad thing. I absolutely think that the sharing economy should enable users and companies to make money. But what we see is the presence of these business models actually inducing consumption, creating increased consumption that is not sustainable. 
So for example, I already mentioned these Airbnb hosts, you know, which buy up all these properties and city centers just to rent out on Airbnb. I mean, they're buying these properties for the sole purpose to make money and in doing so contributing to reduced social sustainability in cities. I can think of another example of peer-to-peer -peer car sharing platform, such as uh, Turo. Users here are buying brand new cars only to rent on the platform as an economic opportunity. So the business really has a role in moderating the profit motivation and the practices of their users in order for the business model actually to contribute to sustainability. These criteria really make sense, Stephen, and actually kind of explain why the accommodation sharing, ride hailing, and e-scooters above are so problematic, because just by you saying that firstly, they must take advantage of the idling capacity of an existing stock of goods. So that explains why these uh, bike sharing and uh, ride hailing examples that we discussed in the previous part are, are so problematic and actually are leading to um, problematic outcomes. Yeah, and what would be the third condition that you mentioned? Yeah, so thirdly, and, and I guess my last suggestion here is that sharing economy business models facilitate temporary access instead of ownership. So the sharing economy is said, again, to increase the intensity of use of the goods that we use in our society and, and thus improving material efficiency. And, and I think this is where the sustainability potential lies. So for me, it really makes sense that we should be focusing on this, this component of access. Instead of buying secondhand or swapping or bartering with others where ownership is just transferred from one person to another, it really doesn't make sense to move you know, the idling capacity of a good that I have and, and give it to you where it then remains idling. So again, focusing on, on temporary access over ownership. This includes consumption practices like sharing, renting, lending, and, and some other similar practices where there's no transfer of ownership. And this means that multiple people can access the same resource, therefore increasing the intensity of use and improving material efficiency. Right. So it seems like these are really good recommendations for companies to think about how to design sharing economy business models more sustainably. Do you have any recommendations for us consumers? Yeah, I think I can provide a few tangible recommendations. I, I think for me first, I would say that we all need to think more critically about how our behavior and our consumption impacts the broader system. And, you know, I'd ask this question of myself and others, you know, do we consider our stay in a private Airbnb in the city center as just a nice vacation, or do we reflect on our role in displacing local citizens and gentrifying neighborhoods? It's not a fun question to, to reflect upon, but, but I think important if we want to contribute to sustainability. For me, it always is helpful to consider what is my consumption practice replacing? For example, is, is taking an Uber replacing a taxi or is it replacing public transit? If it's replacing public transit, the obviously more sustainable consumption practice here, then maybe I should stick to the bus or subway. Now, this does take some time and effort for us to be able to reflect upon and be aware of our own decisions. So if I've learned anything during my PhD and, and especially during this time of the pandemic, it's that I need to just slow down. Right? I need to slow down and maybe think a little bit more critically. I've found that when I you know, think and, and act slowly and deliberately, that limited interventions may lead to more enjoyment and improve sustainability compared to you know, these rushed and reactionary decision-making. Oh, and, and one more thing that I want to share. I'm 
asking, please, please, please read the user agreements of these sharing platforms. In my research, I've reviewed nearly a hundred terms and conditions and, and privacy disclaimers of these sharing platforms. And I think that we would all be a little bit alarmed to know what data these platforms are collecting and using. I mean, remember, many of these platforms are not yet profitable, but are justifying their business models to investors based on the data that they're collecting about all of us for future use. Ugh, this all sounds more bad than good. Um, so where does that leave us? I mean, how do you see the sharing economy contributing to sustainability then? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't want listeners to walk away and feel that the sharing economy has has nothing to provide for us here. I think it's that sustainability is complex. We all have a role to think critically about our own place in the sharing economy and in consumption more broadly. Obviously, I believe that there is a potential for the sharing economy to contribute to sustainability. Otherwise, I wouldn't have researched it for, for nearly five years. But I think it's important that we can't just say that the sharing economy or the circular economy is more sustainable without actually putting in the effort. And unfortunately, I think with strong economic logic and what I perceive to be a relatively weak government and academic institutions, I fear that the sharing economy will continue to be exploited by market forces to the detriment of the environment and our societies. But nonetheless, you know, the drivers that led to the birth of the sharing economy are, are still there. And, and I do believe that the sharing economy will continue in some form or another. And I just hope that the sharing economy is part of the solution and not a part of the problem. So if anything, I hope that sharing can challenge, you know, how we think about our own consumption, leading towards a more sufficiency-based lifestyle. And I really think that if we think more critically and creatively and collaboratively in how we consume, that the sharing economy can deliver on its purported potential. As we wrap up this episode, you know, Stephen, you've really done an amazing job these last five years, like not only by producing excellent research and five papers that have been published, but you also created something tangible, talking again about impact research, where you developed the sharing economy business model framework that really helps guide anyone interested in creating more sustainable sharing business models, which is a very practical and useful tool. You've also been leading this podcast, which has reached, you know, in the top 10% of podcasts globally, and you're defending in June. So it really seems like this journey of your PhD has resulted in a lot of really impactful and meaningful research. How does it feel at the end of all of this? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I mean, I feel just so proud, to be honest. I'm really proud of what I've done as a PhD student and the effort and the contribution that I've, I've sought to make. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I'm changing the world, but I'm proud of, of the work that I've done in trying to think critically of, of my place and my role and, and my privilege as a researcher in sustainability. For those of us that are watching you and learning from you as new PhD students, I mean, it's really inspiring to see the kind of work that can come out from, you know, from five years of research. Have you thought about what to do next now that this journey is ending? 
Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. I think maybe we're all struggling with questions of like our place in the world, especially because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and that means I am too, you know, what what comes next? How do I want to continue to contribute to society? I, I definitely see an interest in continuing in academia, because I do believe that research has such an important role in um, providing, you know, critical and constructive suggestions to improve sustainability. I also really believe in, in the university as a, an important actor in educating future generations and, and leaders, and I want to be a part of that. Um, but I, I'm also frustrated by, by aspects of academia as well in its rigidity and uh, its uh, focus on quantity, often over quality um, in terms of publications and, and funding and otherwise. So yeah, I, I'm exploring several options both within and, and outside of academia. Great. Great. And Stephen, if somebody's interested in learning more about your, your research, where can uh, they find out about it? I think the easiest place is to check out the Urban Sharing Project website, which Oksana uh, mentioned in our interview. Uh, that's www.urbansharing.org. I'm also active on social media, both Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can search for me there, Stephen Kane Curtis, um, K-A-N-E Curtis. And I'm very often sharing insights into my research and, and other interesting research that I find uh, pertaining to sustainability and business models. And finally, Stephen, I mean, this is, you know, almost three years of you doing this podcast. Any last words to your listeners that have been following you and your journey and uh, also learning a lot about sustainability issues? Yeah, thanks. I think people are so important. And what I've enjoyed so much about working on the podcast is just working with an amazing team. Catherine and Franz here on the podcast, you know, the, the energy and the passion and the contribution that they bring and, and uh, Carolina Sodergren, our previous co-host, and of course, Sophie Sandin, who co-founded the podcast with me and, uh, and all the people that have supported us, Per Mikvitz and Lena Ney, the directors of the Institute and our communication managers, Lee and Marianne, and of course, yeah, our listeners, you know, it's been so fun interacting with you on social media and, you know, every month having this discussion about how we can tangibly advance sustainable solutions in our society. So I am, I am just uh, moved and honored to be among and interact with so many amazing people. Yeah, Stephen, there's only one thing to say apart than really big, big congratulations and really well done at the end of this journey. And I think that comes to the end of our episode. Once again, we want to thank Oksana Mont and Anthony Upward for joining us on today's podcast. Also, as always, a special thanks to our production assistant, Franz Libertson. And of course, thank you for joining us on another episode of Embatsing Sustainable Solutions. This episode concludes season three of the podcast. You can check out all of our episodes and learn more about the podcast by visiting our podcast website at www.iiwe.lu.se slash podcast. And we hope to be back in September with brand new episodes. Until then, signing off, this is Stephen Curtis. And Catherine Shepp.